Let us pray together. Lord, we do look at your word now and we ask that you would send your spirit to be our great teacher and guide this morning. We want to not only intellectually understand what is told to us this morning, but we want it to be truths that are taken deep into our hearts so that as we go forward from here, we would not forget what we have heard, but be doers of the word, that we would live for Jesus in every area of our lives. And so it's in his name and for his sake that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Our scripture passage this morning is Mark chapter 13. We're going to be studying the entire chapter. And you'll find Mark chapter 13 on pages 849 and 850 of the Pew Bible. I'll only read a portion of this chapter in light of the time constraints this morning. We'll read verses 1 through 27. I had a friend in high school who was not a Christian, but his parents were Christian and they would take him to church. Remember in 1988, and maybe you recall this as well, there were doomsday prophecies about the end of the world, that Jesus was coming back in 1988. It had been predicted the specific year and he went to church and he heard these doomsday prophecies and Really, he was scared out of his wits. He wasn't sure what was going to happen and what he should do. But he began to clean up his life and try to transform things in an effort to get ready for the Lord. Of course, he knew nothing of the gospel of grace and that the only way to get ready for the Lord is really to trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of his sins and then seek to live for him. But the point is made here. If you knew that Jesus was coming back, what would you do? What would you do? That's really what Jesus has for us here today in chapter 13. And I'll just tell you, this is a, a passage that makes every scholar and every pastor a little bit humbled. It's very difficult to understand and it has been an enigma to many over the centuries. And I approach it with much humility myself, but... My goal this morning is to survey the chapter and see what instructions Jesus has for us. Let me read here in verse 1, chapter 13. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be there will not be left uh, here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to, be, uh, began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he. And they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils. And you will be beaten in synagogues. And you will stand before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all the nations. 
And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you at that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it ought not be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant... For those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. For the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And and then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, Or look, there he is. Do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from the heaven and the the powers in the heavens will be shaken And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. When I was in college, the first Gulf War began. And I can recall all of the speculation in those days about this being the end of the world. This must be the final days that we have entered into. This is such a cataclysmic event and there were speculators who began to try to tie together events that were taking place in the Gulf with descriptions of the end times in the Scriptures. And on campus I can recall Christians speaking about these things and really being excited that maybe the Lord is coming back. Maybe these are the signs that Christ is about to return. I can also remember studying late at night for physics tests with a friend of mine thinking, this would be great if Jesus came back before the morning. Because then I wouldn't have to study and take this physics test tomorrow. What impact should the return of Christ have on our lives? That's really the question that is put before us this morning. The Scriptures tell us that we are living in the last days. From the time of Christ's death, His resurrection and ascension, that from that time until the return of Christ at the end of history, the Bible speaks of those days as being the last days. And so we are in the time period of the last days and have been for some 2,000 years now. Here in this passage, Jesus warns about what His disciples can expect during those last days. In verse 1, we read as Jesus and His disciples were coming out of the temple. You remember how contentious a time that was. 
We saw as the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees came to Jesus with many questions to trap him. And as they came out, the, at least one of the disciples said, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. The disciples were amazed and in awe of the temple and its glory and all of its beauty. Look at these stones and how magnificently they have been put together. The temple, you see, was to be this great conduit of God's presence with his people. It was the vehicle through which he abided with his people and they were to come and worship him there. But now something greater than the temple has arrived. God now dwells among his people in the flesh of his own son, Jesus, the Christ. And yet most of Israel has rejected Jesus as the Christ. They do not receive him and they have been contentious against him. And so now the temple represents not true religion, but false religion, you might say, as we saw last week. And because of that, there's going to be a great judgment of God upon it. And so Jesus responds, do you see these buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. You think this is glorious. But let me tell you, if this is a haven, a false sanctuary for idolatry, then it will be destroyed and it will be torn down. And so he retreats here to the Mount of Olives, just opposite Jerusalem, and he can see with his disciples the temple on the horizon. And as the disciples sit down on the Mount of Olives to talk, they are looking at this glorious temple and thinking about Jesus' words that all of these stones will be torn down in judgment. And they want to ask him a question. And so they ask the question, tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be um, about to be accomplished. Now, in their mind, I'll just tell you that in their mind, the disciples looked upon the end and the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple and the coming of Christ as one particular event. And what Jesus will do in the rest of this chapter is begin to pull these two events apart to say that the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple is one event that will prefigure the final judgment that is to come. And as I said before, this this chapter is in some ways an enigma to many because sometimes you wonder, is Jesus speaking about the destruction of the temple or is Jesus speaking about the judgment that is to come and his final return? Now, let me give you some sense of the structure, at least in a broad way here this morning. Really, verses five down through verse 13. Jesus is describing the kinds of things, the kinds of things that will take place in the last days. The kinds of things that every believer, whether you live in the 15th century or whether you live in the 7th century or whether you live in the 21st century, here are the kinds of things that every believer can expect living in the last days. And then in verses 14 down through 23, Jesus tells the disciples specifically about this event this cataclysmic event that's going to take place in Jerusalem. And he warns them ahead of time about what will take place when Jerusalem comes under attack from the Roman army. 
And then verses 24 through 27, Jesus describes what it will be like when he returns. That's the broad sweep here. But notice, if you will, what Jesus says here is not to give the disciples a particular timeline. To say, here's how everything is going to work out over the years and over the ages to come. But rather, his focus is not so much on the when, which is their question. When will all these things be accomplished? But rather, what are they to do? His concern is a pastoral concern. How should you handle yourselves? How should you live in these last days when things will be filled with turmoil and difficulty? Verse 13 tells us that. He says, verse 13, but the one who endures to the end will will be saved. That's his concern, that we endure to the end, that we press forward, that we're conscious of the fact that Jesus is coming back and that we live in light of that now. And so what he wants for his people and all of his disciples throughout the ages is to be ready to live life as disciples in the last days. He says this over and over throughout the chapter. Verse 9, he says, be on your guard. Verse 13, he says, the one who endures to the end will be saved. Verse 23, be on your guard. Verse 33, he tells us again, be on guard, keep awake. Verse 35, he says, therefore, stay awake. And finally, in verse 37, and what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. So Jesus isn't concerned here to tell the church, here are all the events, the events that will take place. Here's how the timeline will work itself out. But rather to say, the main thing is to be prepared, to be ready for when Christ will return. And he gives us three reasons for that. The first is this. False promises of salvation will lead many astray. False promises of salvation will lead many astray. Jesus speaks here of the great turmoil that will take place in the last days. The great spiritual and cosmic battle that is going on before, between the forces of good and the forces of evil that will play themselves out in world history and will show themselves in signs of great upheaval and turmoil. Verses 7 and 8 tell us this. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. But, the beginning, but these are the beginning of birth pains. Jesus says these are the kinds of things that you can expect and you will see these kinds of things. But what he says is the end is not yet. These are but the beginning of birth pains. They are only signs pointing to the fact that in the future at some point will be the return of Jesus. And so do not be alarmed now by what is taking place. And he especially wants them to understand that fact as they witness the destruction of Jerusalem. Verse 24 says, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it ought not to be. And notice Mark's uh, small insertion. Let the reader understand. He's speaking to his own contemporaries in Rome 
who have not yet seen what is taking place. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Here he's speaking of the day in which Rome will come into Jerusalem and will desecrate the temple and finally fulfill Daniel's prophecy of this abomination of desolation standing where it ought not to be. When you see that take place, he says, flee to the hills. Pray that it will not take place in winter. How hard it will be for pregnant women. If you're in the field, do not go back for your cloak. In other words, this is going to be a terrible and awful event. And it was a terrible and awful event. One that, as he would say later on, took place in the lifetime of that particular generation. And what he says, is, I don't want you to be discerned, uh, discouraged or alarmed by this because there are going to be various false Christs and false prophets who will arise. And Josephus, the great historian, records for us many false leaders who came within the walls of Jerusalem and said, now you follow me against Rome and we will destroy the Romans. Jesus says, don't follow them because if you do, you will be destroyed. These false Christs, these false prophets sought to lead the people of God astray. But ultimately, Rome would triumph and would come in great judgment upon Jerusalem just as God had used the Babylonian army as His own instrument centuries before to come into Jerusalem and destroy it because of its waywardness and faithlessness to God. Such dire circumstances and in that particular situation, there would be many who would arise and say, now all is well. You follow me and all will be well. Paul tells us this. He says to the Thessalonians, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night while people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them. What Jesus says here is that there are false Christs and false prophets who will come along and they will say, peace, security, all is well. Follow me and I will lead you to prosperity. Jesus says, do not follow them. He warns us twice here. Verse 5, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he and they will lead many astray. Again, in verse 22, he says, false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. You may remember reading the last battle in the book uh, or in the Narnia series, series where shift this old ape takes upon himself to deceive those creatures in Narnia who would have followed after Aslan, the great Lion King. And when he finds this old lion skin in the river, he decides that he'll come up with a plan to place it upon his friend Puzzle, the donkey. And he would sew it together in such a way that it looks as though, at least in the nighttime, that Puzzle the donkey is really this great lion, Aslan. And the whole purpose of this is to gain power for himself to say, now look, follow after me. I'm the spokesperson for Aslan. 
And if you will just follow after me, I'll lead you down the right path. Jesus knows that there are many who will come and say, I am he. I'm the deliverer. I speak in the name of the Lord. Come and follow me. And I'll show you the right path. The political pundits in our days want to tell us again and again, all is well. Follow me. I'll show you where peace and prosperity are to be found. For the marriage gurus who want to tell us how we ought to conduct our marriages. Sometimes it's even religious leaders who have gone astray. Friends, there are false prophets. There are false Christs out there. And what Jesus wants us to do is, in a sense, to be like the Bereans of Paul's day who searched the Scriptures intently to see if what he was saying was true. Because we are to follow Jesus and not be led astray by any other. And so Jesus here wants to be on, us to be on our guard and to be prepared because of the false promises of salvation that are out in our world today. But secondly this, He wants us to be prepared because fierce opposition confronts those who proclaim the gospel. Jesus reminds his disciples here in verse 10 of the mission that they would go on. Verse 10 here declares to them the gospel must first be proclaimed to all the nations. That is to say, before Jesus returns, the gospel will be proclaimed in all the earth. That is to be the mission that the disciples are to engage in, and it is to be the mission of the church today. But you know as well as I do that that mission does not move forward without great opposition in this gospel age. He tells his disciples here what to expect. Verse verse, uh, 9, he tells us, they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. Verse 12, he speaks of the turmoil within the family. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Tribulation that Jesus speaks of here in this passage, in part, is the tribulation or oppression that believers will experience in the gospel age as we go forward to proclaim the good news about Jesus Christ. It is the very thing that he has already spoken of many times in his messages to the disciples and the crowds. Blessed are those who are persecuted for my name's sake, Jesus said. We ought to expect this kind of opposition. And certainly these disciples, as they were to go forward in their earthly ministry, would experience these kinds of things, wouldn't they? They would be imprisoned. They would be rejected and ridiculed. They would experience poverty and illness. They would be isolated from others. And ultimately, some of them would be put to death. And so Jesus says here to them, be on your guard or literally take watch for yourselves. And the same is true for us today. I don't know if you've noticed in the news over the last week that two graduate students at different universities within the United States have been threatened with expulsion from their programs if they do not change their views on homosexuality. 
In fact, they've been told that they must both go through remediation courses in order to really indoctrinate them into the doctrine of tolerance. Now, I have no idea how these young women responded. I have no idea how they conducted themselves. I have no idea of whether or not the university is responding against them because of hostility within their own hearts. But it does say something about the way in which the Christian worldview is understood in our culture. That tolerance is not what the, quote, tolerant will exercise towards Christians. We live in a world of great opposition. And we're to be on our guard as we proclaim the good news in this world. Jesus wants us to make a decisive choice here. Because we must make a decisive choice if these are the kinds of things that we might face. Children bringing parents before the authorities. Fathers turning children over to the authorities. Turmoil within the family. Opposition in the workplace. Some of you have experienced these things already. Jesus wants us to stand firm. He says, choose today. Choose today that you will stand firm for Christ. And I think that's what every disciple really wants, isn't it? I think in some ways in our own hearts, one of the things that we want to know is, how would I respond in a situation like that? We want to know that we would respond by standing firm for Christ, bearing witness to Him, not letting go of our allegiance to Him. Because we know that when we do, there's a great sense of joy, a great sense of pleasure, knowing that we have stood firm for Jesus, knowing and sensing that God's powerful work is going on and taking place within us so that we have come to such a place in our discipleship that we remain resolute under great opposition. We would continue to bear witness to Jesus. Sometimes we wonder what is in us, how we would respond. Jesus doesn't leave us without help here. He says here in verse 11, When they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Now this is not a promise for unprepared preachers to get up on a Sunday morning and be able to speak without preparation. It's a promise to Christians that God would send His Spirit in us that we might be able to stand firm for Jesus. That we might be able to give a reason for our faith. There's no promise here that we would be acquitted. There's no promise that the disciples would be acquitted even within the courts of man but rather the promise that I would send my Spirit who would enable you to stand firm, to be on your guard, and to remain faithful to me. Isn't that what we see in the life of Peter? Or in Stephen, who, was remain, who remained faithful to the point of death being stoned? Or, or the Apostle Paul? Or Polycarp? Or what about others like Luther? Corey Tinboom, 
And the list goes on and on of how God has sent His Spirit into people's hearts in times of great opposition. He would give us the boldness to stand firm for Him. And so let us remain firm. The final reason that Jesus gives to be ready is this. Faithful servants delight to see their Savior. Faithful servants delight to see their Savior. Those who do remain faithful, who endure to the end of their lives, those are the people who long with great expectation that Jesus would return. Those are the people who do not look upon His return with fear, but rather look upon His return with great expectation. Here Jesus addressing their concerns about when He would return says in verse 32, Concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So here Jesus gives no particular time frame. But what Jesus does focus on here in verse 33 through 37 is what the disciples are to do. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. Now every servant in the house of the master knows his role. He knows exactly what his job is, and he wants to be about that task until such time as the master comes back. And sees that he has done all things well. And we are people who live in the master's house. And know what our role is. And want to be faithful until Jesus comes back. So that when he does come back. He will see that we have done things for him well. John Wesley. Was an itinerant preacher in various times. One day after he had preached a sermon, someone asked him the question, if you knew that Jesus was coming back tomorrow, what would you do? John Wesley pulled out his date book and he looked at it and all the things that he had planned and he lifted it up and said, now that's what I would do. And we ought to be able to say the same thing, right? When you look at your date book for this next week, for this next month, even for this next year, what does it say? If you had to go back knowing that maybe Jesus was going to come within the next week, would would you change anything on your calendar? How would you live for Him? How would you be ready so that when He comes, You're not asleep, but rather up, living for Him, engaged in the purposes of God. Paul speaks to believers on this way, and he tells the Thessalonians that when Jesus comes on that day to be glorified in His saints, to be marveled at among all who have believed. And again, to Timothy, he speaks of those who have loved His appearing. And we are those who love His appearing. 
because we want to live for Him now. Not in a way in which we are somehow meriting our own salvation, but simply because of the free offer of the gospel of grace. That He has forgiven us of our sins, He has paid our great debt, and now we want to live for Him. I mentioned to you earlier that I was ready for Jesus to come back so that I didn't have to study for a physics test. How shallow a reason could you find for wanting Jesus to come back? I think the mature disciple wants Jesus to come back because you want Jesus to take delight in all that you've done in living for Him. We always want that to be the case of those people that we respect and love when, when they return and they, they see what we have done and they say, well done. And we long for that too when our Savior will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Sometimes I think, and I, I'll just say I, I long for the day that Jesus returns. But some days I think, if I could just have a few more, because I want to get ready for Him. That ought to be our mindset. When we leave here today, I want to get ready for Jesus. So that if He were to come today, everything that I've planned out for this next week, those are the things that I want to do because they please Jesus. One day we'll hear those great and glorious words. Well done good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we long for Your Son to be glorified in our lives in the way in which we live for Him. We pray that we would not be found asleep to be those who no longer strive even against great opposition to live for Christ. Rather, we are those who are patiently and faithfully living for Jesus in every area of our lives. Help us to examine our lives and to see if that is the case. If we are really enduring and living for Him to the very end. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.